Hi, welcome back to Unleashed at Work at Home. My guest today is Dr. Fia Jokola, a veterinary behaviorist who is going to talk to me today about empathy, which I think is a really important trait for us to explore because, of course, it's something that everyone working with animals needs, and it's also the one trait that makes us at risk for compassion fatigue. So welcome, Dr. Jokola. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I'm delighted to have you. Um, we were talking a little bit when we were when we were getting ready to do this episode about the trait of empathy, and I said, "Could you share an example with animals?" And you said, "Well, there's really the question of whether or not we can know that animals are empathetic." So, can you tell me a little bit more about that? Well, I think we all, um, any of us in this profession, feel like you know our dogs are our sounding board. Uh, the reason we went into this profession. Um, I think we've all felt that, you know, when anything sad or heavy comes into our life, we turn to our dogs and, you know, we always feel like, yes, as we're crying and they're licking our tears or they're just snuggling closer to us, that they're empathetic to us. Um, And I don't know if we really know that for sure. It seems that way. I like to think it's that that's true. Um, I think the one thing, you know, just even as I got into behavior, after being just a regular animal owning person for a very long time. And I learned that, you know, dogs don't like hugs and kisses. And I'm like, what? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I thought that's what it was all about. And then, you know, you're kind of like, Oh my God, I've been doing that all my life. And, um, and again, I don't think that's because they're not empathetic. They just have a different way of communicating. Um, and of course there are some dogs that do like hugs and kisses, but the majority don't. But I think, um, we just have to think about, from their perspective a little bit more um, than always from our own. But yes, I do think that it's hard to say what animals do. We can think of examples like if you have a family of your own dogs and you think about how there's always kind of a dog that kind of seems like the mother hen that might split between two dogs that might be getting a little bit rowdy and you're thinking, you know, are they really trying to calm the whole situation down for everybody or is it just making them nervous? Mm-hmm. We, really, we really don't know where that's coming from. Are they making themselves feel better? Um, and that was, again, something that um, kind of shocked me because as you study behavior, you know, you're, you're hearing that dogs are amoral. And I'm like, what? <laughs> <laughs> what? It can't be. Um, and, you know, I think what I've learned by doing behavior is that dogs are commonly thinking, am I safe or not safe? Yes. But I think that's where my empathy kicks in because I see a lot of dogs saying, I don't feel safe. And having experienced myself being in situations like that, then my empathy, that's why I do the work I do is because I see the fear in dogs that so many people just, you know, don't even recognize. They don't know how to recognize. Right. And that's what drives me to do what I do. And I think the safe or not safe is one of the best criterion to to look at behavior with when we're when we're talking to people to try to explain why this behavior might be occurring because does right. the dog feel safe and comfortable or is the dog not feeling so safe and right. it it takes the moral piece out of it you know yes like yeah. my dog took you know a loaf of bread off the counter because it was safe to do so in that moment <laughs> it wasn't really bad it wasn't stealing yes um, it was yes an opportunity Yes. So yes, dogs like opportunities, Mm -hmm. but I think they do like opportunities to feel joyful with us. I do think they feel that. And I think the first thing is if the animal does feel safe, then the second thing kind of comes to mind is 
I don't know if I, you know, it's hard to put words into animals' mouths, but am I enjoying this? So when you see your dog just have that wiggly butt and right. those soft eyes and all of that, they first want to feel safe. They can't offer us anything else. But when they do feel safe and they share that with us and, you know, you do get those longing looks from your dog, you do, really do feel that they're looking deeply into your soul and they know what you're feeling. I like to believe that. I, you know, again, we we'll, may never know for sure, but I, I get a sense that the animals I've lived in my life, they may not exactly understand why I'm upset, but I, I do think they want to comfort me. Mm-hmm. Um, and they want to, I mean, basically, it's probably just more companionship than anything. They, yeah. they want to be with you thick or thin. If you're happy, they want to be with you. If they're sad, all of those things. But I think where my empathy mostly kicks in is when, at least professionally, is when I see so many animals feeling unsafe. Right. And knowing how that feels makes me... Um, and and I feel bad because a lot of my clients will um, um, not they'll feel about their dog. They're like, I don't know who that dog is. I don't think my dog's safe. I can't trust him. They say that a lot. Yeah. I can't trust him. And I'm thinking, actually, it's both sides. And how, <laughs> how can I build this trust back? Because the dog doesn't trust the owner and the owner doesn't trust the dog. So how can I bring that back? Because, yeah, that, that really hurts yeah, it does. when a person doesn't, you know, your own dog bites you. That really hurts. I think your point earlier about safe and unsafe and then moving toward enjoyment is a really good analogy for for human behavior, too, where we are wired to adapt and to get accustomed to things and find that equilibrium. But right. we're not necessarily wired to move ourselves toward actual joy and going north of neutral what's better we're we're wired to be eh, it's fine in the middle ground um and safe not safe takes us to the middle ground but yeah. then we want to move beyond and yes. <laughs> the the other example of the of the animal sort of comforting us when our when we're down my dog recently got the greatest gift of his whole life so what he would like more than anything is for me to spend all of my time just lying next to him petting him I mean, that's really all he wants. And a while back, I got a pinched nerve in my back, and I spent way too much time lying on the floor with a heating pad and the world's happiest dog laying next to me. And it was really funny to me to see, like, I'm starting to feel better, and he's like, oh, rats. (laughs) Because he was like, in heaven, this is the best thing ever. We'll just lie together for hours. And it was lovely for me because I was feeling very sorry for myself. And there's really nothing better than a dog beside you to make that better. But the idea of safe and unsafe going toward that equilibrium point, And then we need, we need to consciously and deliberately try to find ways to move toward actual joy, I think. Right. Yes. That. Yes. Yes. So sure. from the human aspect, then, if we're, if we're looking at that, that can be a real challenge when working with animals is that we are so affected by animals who feel unsafe that 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 pulls all the heartstrings and and drives our passion and makes us do the work that it can be very draining has that been your experience absolutely absolutely yes um i i sort of see some of the the worst of the worst um and I also see people um, who have listened to others that appear to be professional and done some things. And it's and I have to really dig deep because I'm like, why would you have allowed someone to do that to your dog? Right. And 
and they were just following advice. Right. They were doing the best they could. They didn't know where to turn. You know, they get inundated from all their friends and family, do it like this. And, um, you know, and then I have to think about a way how to gently, because I don't want to devastate them Mm -hmm. on, you know, boy, what you did really messed your dog up. I don't want to say that, but I want to find a way to understand how troubled they were. And I at least know they certainly wouldn't come to see me if they didn't really, really love this dog. So I really have to, and I even have to think about others in the profession that use kind of methods that I'm not real cool about, Mm -hmm. that they still really think, I mean, maybe not all, but a lot of them, majority of them, likely still really think they're doing the right thing. Right. They're, They're not in this business because they don't like animals, but you know, it's just the education is so lacking. So I, that probably takes a toll on me sometimes where I see people like, you know, and you just, why do people keep doing this and why do they allow that? And I, and that gets me frustrated. Um, but I, I think it's really important because I'm not going to be able to work with that person if I don't have empathy for them. But I think that's where I feel burnout sometimes. Mm-hmm. I never, I never, um, lose the passion to want to heal the animal, heal the bond, but that's the thing where I, you know, after you've had a case after case of people just, oh my God, doing horrible things, and you just, oh, why, why, why do they not understand? But they really don't. They don't they really have don't. knowledge. They really don't. And that's that's, I can do it, but that's where after a lot of cases in a row, I, and especially if a euthanasia rolls in there because of something like that, that's where. I think it it drags me down um, mm-hmm. probably the most. Yeah. So what do you do to help bring yourself back up when that happens? I mostly have to, well, I, I guess sometimes it's almost like fate that I'm really in a dull moment and then somebody sends me an email and tells me a wonderful success story or they send me a video just when I'm like, I can't do this work anymore and then... I get a success story that just one success story can beat out 10 that are struggling. Um, I think that's the biggest thing. I'm certainly turning to my own dogs and just coming home and getting on the couch and snuggling with them. Um, and that's where I feel they have empathy for me, but I don't know. I think they're just trying to feel good with themselves, but that's <laughs> There's that's not, nothing, okay too. Wrong, nothing wrong with that. Absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, I think that's, um, it's it's looking for the success stories, and sometimes I really have to guide myself or go back and and look at a case, or um, sometimes it's talking to a colleague and hearing that yep they've experienced the same thing. Um, you know, I think that's probably what I I, I do is sh- try to sh- find a person to share it with, try to share it with my dogs, and then try to look at where's a good case. Let me let me see success that makes me want to keep trying, and I think that's pretty much how I get through it but it it goes in cycles you have ups and downs but it's kind of the nature of the work I think I think so too but I think the the idea of sharing it with with a colleague someone who will understand Mm -hmm. really is very helpful yes and sometimes a piece that we want to skip like we don't want to burden someone they you yeah. know they're dealing with so much too or they'll just think I'm whining or some of the negative thoughts that may go through our minds but the act of saying this was really hard I was really frustrated and discouraged and tired from this yeah. just sharing yeah. it can help yeah. to start refilling yeah. you yeah yep 
um, sometimes I think a place I struggle at, though, is if I'm in that kind of low moment and I've had some things go wrong, cases that are struggling or, or you know, people always ask me, um, is this going to get better? <laughs> I'm always just saying, I, I, I don't think I've ever seen a case I've worked where it doesn't get better, but will it get better enough mm-hmm. that the animal has quality of life and it's safe for this animal to stay in this household or any other household or anywhere? Can we give quality of life and can we give safety? So I don't think it's a matter of will it get better. It's just it's just how much. But sometimes, you know, you get people that will do more than others. And and some it's, you know, you just get that phrase, I just can't have this. I just can't have this in my house. You know, right. like you're talking about like an object. I just can't have this in my house. Mm-hmm. And I get really down about that. And then you get a bunch of those. And I'm usually the type of person that I'm, I know I'll probably get told, <laughs> don't do this, but I'm kind of on 24-7. I've got my email. I don't shut it off. I probably should. And so on weekends sometimes, and you get a bunch of those. And then someone you still just, you know, they just email. Ugh. Sometimes it does make me feel like snapping sometimes that um, it's like there's no boundaries. Do you people not respect it? It'll email me something silly. I'm like, can that not wait? And then if I let it wait, it's like, oh, my gosh, why didn't you answer me on Saturday? And I'm like, well, I thought you'd figure it was Saturday and you would wait until right. Monday. Right. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so I feel that makes, I think that affects me sometimes where I kind of feel used. Like, I need time to de- decompress here. You're not the only client I'm dealing with, not the only sad story. And if it's not an emergency, I might not answer you till Monday. Um, but that's partly my fault, probably from not putting the boundaries in that I should to cut off sometimes. But it's just kind of how I, how I am. Yeah. Well, and the boundaries are super helpful, but they they take a little bit of work and practice to build. Exactly. And figure yeah. out what works for you, what what yeah. feels right to you. Yeah. yeah. But you are right that having ha- never having a period where you know you're not going to get an email where somebody is upset um means that the back of your brain is always wondering what's in your email, you know? Like <laughs> What's there? Next time I check, is it going to be bad? Yes. Every time the phone dings, you know, it's like, yeah, what's what's coming in now? Right. And that's really draining. Yeah. How long have you been practicing? 28 years. Not in behavior, though. Um, Most of that was general medicine. I went into behavior late in life. I kind of went through a life-changing moment and kind of was reaching some burnout in general practice, mostly because I owned my own practice and... It was very difficult to be a full-time veterinarian and a full-time business owner, mm-hmm. and it just, I couldn't do both well. Mm-hmm. So I thought, what am I going to do with my career? I've got this education. What am I going to do with this thing? And um, I'm like, how can I make lemonade out of my lemon? <laughs> I love general practice. Don't get me wrong. But again, it was a burnout point and um, again, just spread too thin. And so... I just started going to behavior. I just said, go do something that you've never, you know, when I go to continuing ed, we used to go to all the surgery, dermatology, cardiology, all of that stuff. And I said, just go to something really different that you would never have done before. And I just went to behavior. And I was like, oh, my God, this is so interesting. And then, of course, I, I got my behavior dog. You always have one that's just, you know, you mm-hmm. go, oh, my gosh. <laughs> I had no idea dogs could be like this, and then you start seeing how you can heal them, and then you start learning, and then again, that's where I'm like, I could do this for other people, and then I start thinking, my gosh, every animal that came into my exam room, uh, you know, probably had some issues I could have helped people with, I just didn't even know to ask, 
So once I started doing that, now I just feel like I heal way more animals. I probably save more lives, really. I mean, I know, you know, the older are dying from cancer or something. I'm not saving those in general practice. But, you know, it's these young dogs that are middle-aged dogs that should have many years left that I am I'm I feel like I'm really saving more lives because I'm affecting that group and I think for a lot of veterinarians those dogs disappear and you think oh well it's a competitive world that dog probably just went to some other veterinarian and no it went to the shelter and never was seen again so I think we didn't realize all that and I started seeing when it's like once you start seeing the behavior issues you can't unsee it and I just started seeing it everywhere and I just couldn't stop and I thought, you know, it's it, this is what I want to do, and um, I was pretty late in life saying, gosh, should I do a residency? And I'm like, no, there's no way. And then I'm still in the residency now, so I'm I'm, I'm a resident, not board certified, but that, th- that was probably the best decision because, again, I said about having colleagues, there's all these residents that I can talk to, that we have our listserv, that we can share good things and bad things or an idea about a case or what did you do. Um, or what's your frustration, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, so that actually brought me into just, um, probably having a better support group than I did as a general practitioner where I was kind of isolated, uh, within my own hospital, um, just gets me out a little bit more connected to, to other professionals and what we're doing. So what, what tips would you give a general practitioner then if, you know, assuming they're not going to switch into behavior, what suggestions would you have for them? Well, I, I would say I think it's important to find your, your niche, uh, something that you do especially well and focus so that it's very hard. I think where I felt burnout was that I had to be a dermatologist, the cardiologist, the orthopedist, all those things, and you cannot do everything well. Mm-hmm. And I, I got really frustrated, and, and I did sometimes in burnout feel angry at the client. I'm like, gosh, how, what do you expect me to do to be, you know, all of this, and you want me the dentist, and da 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 And when I started, I was still in general practice doing behavior, and I started to have that niche. That really helped me to have that one area where I knew I could, you know, kind of excel at one thing. So I, I still, you know, did the other things, but I think it, that gave me um, a new lease on life to be able to say. So, I mean, there are some people that are like doing uh, rehab work or they really focus just on pain control. They find some little area where they can really focus their continuing ed and really have others, you know, come and ask them questions because they have accumulated this special body of knowledge. And I think that that really brought me around instead of just being a jack of all trade and, and master of none that I was able to start working towards a niche and getting into a, a supportive group. So again, there's so many different subspecialties now that people can do. Mm-hmm. I think that would be my best advice for, I mean, even a, even a new grad to say, find something that don't try to just be everything to all people. It will burn you out and people won't appreciate it find something that you're really good at um, and you still do other things, but find that one area that can rejuvenate you and, you know, be something that you really, really super enjoy because that was the one thing that I got out of behavior. As much as I love veterinary medicine and I did, and I took, I mean, I just really loved it. I built my own practice, um, really, really loved it. Um, I kind of lost the joy, you know, when I got out of vet school, I thought I was going to change the world and everything would be different. And then you kind of get into the grind and you really aren't. And and once I got into the behavior and I started to feel really, you know, getting my feet 
under me and I really knew what I was doing, I felt that joy come back Mm -hmm. of how I felt when I was a new grad. And that was, you know, and that was after at least 25 years of practice. Well, no, maybe not that much, 20, 20, probably 20 years of practice, two decades, um, that I suddenly had that, that renewed feeling um, because I had picked on one thing that I could really, really do well. And I think that's what, because I seriously considered leaving the profession. I just didn't know what else to do. Right. And a lot of people do. I read a statistic that said, I hope I get this right. I'll, I'll double check it for the show notes. But um, I think it was 38% of veterinarians say they would choose the career again, which means 62% say they would choose mm-hmm. something else. That's right. really shocking to me. There's a lot of people that leave the profession. Yes, I know a lot of people that have left the profession, and that is very sad. Mm-hmm. It is very, very sad. And that I felt like I was one of them about to. But um, And the beautiful thing about doing behavior as a veterinarian is I still deal with so many medical issues because we're always differentiating medical problems from behavior, or they just – they they interact on one another. So I still get to, to, you know, think about my medical training. I use it every day. Um, but I use it in a different way. Some of your advice there just reminded me of a book I just read called the power of moments by Chip and Dan Heath. And Mm -hmm. they, they talk about, you know, things that really change people's lives and are, are memorable in some way. And they have four different traits that, that seem to play a role in, in being defining moments. Um, elevation, something that brings you up and makes you happy or, or surprised or joyful. Pride, insight, a new way of looking at things, and connection. And when you're talking about when you went back and started working in behavior, I think you got all of those. Like the insight yeah. of that you could really save more animals and, and heal relationships and do things. And yeah. the social connections with the new colleagues and the pride of learning new things and, and having mm-hmm. a, having an itch. This is my this is my space. Right, right. That's that sums it up very, very well. That's exactly what it did for me. And so that's what I would encourage anybody. It doesn't have to be behavior. There's so many, so many things now that you can do. And I think that can carry you through the rest of the stuff because we all, you know, we still have to be veterinarians and everybody can, can do what I do. But to have that special area that you really feel good about, or maybe it is just, you know, working for a shelter or helping them out. Some people do that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just something that you feel like you make a difference in the world. It's not, you know, just the old grind. I, to me, that, for me, that's really helpful um, to feel I make. And that's one thing I can do in behavior too. Is that I do get into the shelters. I'm not, you know, in the in taking care of the infectious disease or the surgery end, but I'm doing the behavior. And I probably would have to say, I probably enjoy shelter work more than I, I enjoy it all. So I don't want to say I don't enjoy it, but Mm -hmm. there's something special. I do um, post adoptions out of a big shelter in Chicago. um, And, you know, people get the dog home and it's like, oh my God, what are we going to do? We've never had this problem and they're frantic and they want to bring it back. And, and some of them, the training staff there can help, but some of them, you know, their separation anxiety or, you know, just fear of fear, aggression and stuff like that. And the people in over their heads and I get some of the nicest clients and I, I, I just really love going there and then helping save that adoption. And, you know, that's not something I, I mean, I take a big discount on, but that's, you know, a lot of people say, you're so busy. Why don't you give that up? And I'm like, Oh God, there's no way I could give that up. That, that's what renews me. That's I'm like, okay, you want me to have a hobby? I'm just going to say going to the shelter is my hobby then because <laughs> it, it's different. 
it's just a little bit different and to save those adoptions and see those dogs that, you know, and again, you see those dogs going, I don't feel safe. And when the people get them home and they're having a problem, that's it. And to be able to tell the people, this is what we have to do. We need to make your animal feel safe. And then they realize that because everybody else is saying, why don't you jerk them on a choke chain or scream at them? And we're saying, no, you need to help them feel safe. And to see them realize um, and to save those adoptions, that's probably the top thing for me. Um, And again, I do it because I do think about the dogs that have saved me, whether they were meaning it or not with their empathy. I still felt it. I felt, you know, when you rescue a dog, they rescue you. Mm -hmm. and. That's why I just love helping shelter adoptions. I I think my focus is a lot in in trying to keep them out of the shelter, being there to help people not give their dog up. But if they go there and someone else gets something that someone else gave up, that I can kind of work that back so that that dog brings that joy to another person's life. Right. And that that pays forward beyond the life of that dog, too. Because when someone has a dog and they give up thinking this is not – doable it makes them really gun shy about getting another dog yes whereas if you can have someone give you some guidance and say okay this is doable then they are likely to have another dog at some point and another and another you know to to really feel like their life is full with a dog they need to have a dog so that if there isn't one right i need one it is preserving that human animal bond and letting people um you know build that back and that there's just nothing more gratifying I mean, I'm very, very lucky if I won the lottery tomorrow, I would work the same way I do now. I wouldn't be the person that would say, I'm never doing that again. I mean, I would just, I just love what I do. I'm really, really lucky. And I always did love veterinary medicine, but I did, when I found this one area that just seemed to fulfill what was missing, mm-hmm. it made a big difference. Uh, what are the challenges you see empathy-wise uh, between staff members in an animal hospital? That is really tough. Um, because I think there's everyone is so underpaid and overworked. Mm-hmm. Um, and then it, there is still is, you know, I, I used to always work with my staff because, you know, the, the clients actually would be kind of rude to them. And then they would want to push their way and talk to me. And then they would get in the exam room and they'd be super, super nice to me. But I had kind of witnessed or heard or overheard how they treated my staff. And, and I had to talk to my staff and say, you know what, they're just worried about their animal. They're just scared that something's wrong with their animal. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, I don't like it when they're not nice to you guys and they kind of berate you on the phone about something. But they're just, we have to just think about how would you feel if this was your dog and you thought your dog, right. you know. Safe or unsafe. I'm feeling yeah. really unsafe. Something's not yes, okay with exactly. my dog. Exactly. Um, but it, it's hard for people that, you know, I mean, I it's just not a well-paid profession and they, it's a very emotional job, you know, even if you're, you know, the receptionist or anybody in there, it's just a very emotional job and it is hard to support. They have to deal with the public. Dealing with the public is very, very difficult. (laughs) Yes, it is. And again, we have to say, let's focus on the client that thanked us profusely. Let's just let this one go and try to understand that person was just scared about their dog and their dog probably is, you know, their only support, maybe. That's why they're mm-hmm. freaking out. And so we just have to understand that and then go back to the people that do love us and who do rave about us and come in and bring us cookies and all of that stuff. Focus on those and just realize those other people are, you know, they're not coming to the vet because they don't like animals. We're all in this together. Everybody right. comes right. here, likes their animal in some way, maybe not the way we think it, you know, should be, but 
um, that was something I tried to to share with my staff. But it it is hard, and and they you know they see the animals that are sick. They see some of these people just aren't prepared even for euthanasia. You know they they. You know, if you're if you have an education, if you're a registered tech or if you're a, you know, a veterinarian, but you know, a lot of the receptionists aren't ready for, you know, people on the phone talking about euthanasia. It's really hard on them, right? Um, right. And they don't have the training, so we try to, you know, do that. And then I think the other thing is just communication is such a difficult thing because we're so busy and we're running and messages don't and then people's feelings get hurt um just trying to keep everybody in the same loop was was difficult and i think really where i probably went wrong is i was trying to do it all myself and i you know i did for a while have a practice manager but uh, that's why i to to try and keep my staff healthy um my clients healthy and the animals healthy it's just like that's like three three jobs right (laughs) and very hard to do it is. It is. And and often someone can have an outside perspective that can help everyone else sort yeah. of come together. But when you're busy doing all the things, you just get run down. There's so yeah. many things. There's always yeah. one more thing. It's a real tough thing. Yeah. For some reason, I think, you know, clients, the way they talk to, to my staff or even sometimes to me, nobody would ever talk that way. I swear to their MD. Maybe they do get it, but... <laughs> You know, they, you know, if they wait 10 minutes, I'm like, gosh, you go to the MD's office, you wait for an hour and a half and you don't say a word. Yeah. I mean, that's, it's accepted, but any little thing like that, it's, we're held to such a higher standard. We really are. I think that takes a toll on everyone in this profession is we're held to such a higher standard and, and yet we're, we're, we're so thin on the, on the number of people helping this many animals. It's always that way because we always have, we're trying to keep costs down so clients can afford it. And so we're always working on a <laughs> budget, right. but they expect this, you know, concierge type, you know, we're going to be at a, at a five-star hotel here. And, you know, we can't, you can't have both ways. You can't have, you know, we try to give good service, but sometimes, you know, they're on the phone and the phone is ringing and there's just not somebody to answer it at the second ring. We, I mean, we certainly tried. Um, and I think that's one thing that's kind of sad to me now as I see um, now so many clinics are going to, people aren't answering the phone anymore. It's, it's the machine and there's such a loss of that personalized service. But right. it, it's, it, it's hard to maintain because those people deserve good wages and insurance and all of those things and we can't give it to them and keep prices low. So just like everybody else, we're cutting out that personal service. And I think that's very sad about veterinary medicine. I think that will burn out people because you're not making the connections like you used to do. Right. Uh, yeah. I, because the, the human connection is, well, it's, it's the same thing we've been circling around this whole time. It's the best part and the worst part of the jobs. You right. Know? Exactly. Exactly. We do need it, but it's, it's hard. It's a challenge. Right. Yeah. So you mentioned your dogs. How many dogs do you currently have? I have two right now. Um, that's probably a low number for me, but that's where I am right now, and probably because I work so much. I have a really interesting dog. Um, he's a Galgo. I don't know if you're familiar with Galgos from Spain. No. Um, they are, it's kind of an atrocity over there in Spain that no one would believe that they're killing probably over 50,000 do- dogs a year wow. in very, very bad ways. Um 
because they're used as hunting dogs for sport, um, gambling, that type of thing. Kind of kind of like greyhounds here, uh-huh. but a little bit more barbaric. And they are they are killing. They breed as many as they possibly can to get the fastest one, and the rest die. Uh-huh. And when well, not just die, they're bad things happen to them. And so we went over there, a group of, um, actually a group of trainers that I work with, we went over there to help at a shelter. And it was just amazing. Most of the dogs are being sent out into Europe because for some reason in Spain, these dogs are thought of as dirty dogs. Mm-hmm. And they're very much like a greyhound or a sighthound. Um, and most of them are going into Europe on caravans, but they bring a few back to the U.S. And so every time someone gets on a flight back to the U.S., they're you can attach to your ticket a, a galgo that goes in the cargo hole, which is, again, is not fun to put a galgo in, in that, but we feel like we're getting them out of a really bad situation. So I ended up adopting one of those, and then I have another little, another not a little dog, he's a big guy. He was kind of born in some mean streets in Chicago and was found. He was full of puncture wounds and scabs, and, and it was like a January, and I just couldn't resist. Somebody brought him to me just kind of like, well, we found this dog trying to get into school. Will you take him? And I thought, well, sure, I'll adopt him out. But you know how that goes. Uh (laughs) (laughs) You found a great home for him right where he was. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, But he was my behavior dog, and I think that's because he he was probably about uh, three months, but he had already been battered and Mm -hmm. through a lot of bad stuff. Um, And so... He kind of, um, yeah, I was like, wow, this is really tough owning a dog like this. This is really hard and really got me interested when I, you know, could yeah. see. And he is much better, but I, you know, he's still fragile and right. just kind of understanding that. Um, but, yes, it, there's nothing more gratifying than taking a fearful dog and helping them feel safe. Yes, that is, that does make you feel so good. And it makes the clients feel good when they realize what they've done. Yes. Um so, yeah, that's that's wonderful. So I, I have those, and I also have a cat who was just a, a stray cat that kind of came to me. And so, yeah, we have the cat and the two dogs. Sounds great. Well, one question I like to ask sometimes is if your dog could talk, how would he describe you? So, so pick one of your dogs, <laughs> and in English, tell me what the dog would think about you. Oh, I know that for sure. They would, all say, they would all say she works too much and she doesn't play enough and she should play with us more. She works too much. Oh, so they're very and, wise animals, huh? <laughs> and I feel sad. That's probably my biggest regret. I feel sad because I'm healing so many other people's dogs and that takes me a lot of hours and sometimes I'm sitting here writing up reports and they're like, can't we go for a walk or can't we yeah. go do this? And I'm like, no, I have to do this. So I could easily say if you ask them, they'd go, tell her to stop working so much. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I'm I'm going to assume that your dog's very wise advice will get into your head sooner or later. <laughs> um, if listeners wanted to learn more about you and the work you do, how could they reach you? Um, they can go to my website, which is chicagovetbehavior.com. Okay, excellent. Well, I've really enjoyed talking to you today, Dr. Jacobi. I've enjoyed it too. My pleasure. It's been fun. Um, yeah. So thank you so much for coming on Unleashed at Work and Home. And if any of you enjoyed this episode, please like it and share it. And there are lots and lots of animal professionals who are struggling with empathy and burnout and compassion fatigue and all of the things that make you great at your job can make your job really, really hard. So let's just spread the word and everyone support each other a little bit more. We can all feel a little bit better. <laughs> <laughs>